As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. to the latest edition of the Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman. Joined as always by Stuart Mandel. And Stu, I know this was your weekend for your Northwestern homecoming. This is year 20 or year 25? Don't put me too far ahead just yet. This was the uh, 20th reunion. Man, it was a lot of fun. Just crazy how many of my close friends from school all made it back. And it's just surreal how you can not see somebody for 10, 15, maybe even 20 years and pick up right where you left off. So we had a lot of fun, but um, you may have noticed that the football game I attended ended in, in rather eventful fashion. I got to be honest. I watched some of it. You know, I was, I, because it was a USC game, it was a home game for me. I was able to go into the Fox lot. And uh, so got to see a lot of games. That one, to be honest, Northwestern uh, Nebraska wasn't going to be the highest priority, but it looked like Scott Frost was going to get his first win. So how come they didn't? Yeah, I mean, I first of all, I wouldn't wish the first, you know, it was fun for me, but I wouldn't wish the first three and a half quarters of that game on anyone. I mean, it was honestly like, first of all, it definitely felt like you were watching two and three versus 0 and 5. And if you're somebody who watches a lot of SEC, Ohio State, Oklahoma type games, it kind of feels like somebody, you're watching it at like three quarters speed, you know, not a lot of speed on that field. And the atmosphere I would describe as like a baseball game in mid-June, like a, just a nice pretty day to, to, to go sit in the stands and watch. But that being said, the last Northwestern had all but lost that game. They were down 10 with, I believe, three and a half minutes left. And there's this, so there was the, the regular stands, which by the way, were probably 60% red, um, where we watched most of the game. There's also this terrace above the end zone that if you pay a little extra money, you, you can kind of come and go to that. It's you know food and drink, and, and you can watch the game from up there. It's behind the end zone. 
So I went up there just to basically meet up with my friend before we left, thinking the game was over, and ended up watching the rest of it there. The amount of things that had to go wrong for Nebraska to lose that game, I, I just I honestly felt bad for all those Nebraska fans who came there thinking they're going to finally see their first win under Scott Frost. They're leading, they're leading by a touchdown. Well, let's go back a minute before they're leading by ten. Northwestern kicks a field goal, you know, to, to cut it to seven. They kick the onside kick. They don't get it. All Nebraska has to do is get a couple first downs. Game over. They run the ball up the gut three straight times. Northwestern uses their three timeouts. Barely any time goes off the clock. But they got then they punt it to the one. So Northwestern has to go 99 yards in two minutes with no timeouts with an offense that just frankly had not looked that good all game. They do it, and thanks in part, by the way, to the most penalized team in college football, the Nebraska Cornhuskers, who committed a roughing the passer in the end zone and a couple pass interferences along the way. Okay, so now you've got, you're going to overtime. And uh, Nebraska has it fourth and fourth that gets to be fourth and inches, I believe, in overtime. And instead of taking the points, kicking the field goal, they go for it. Adrian Martinez fumbles the snap, scrambles for his life, throws it up in the end zone. Northwestern intercepts it, kicks the field goal to win. We like to make fun of those ESPN win probabilities a lot. <laughs> How many times a team that's like 98.7% ends up losing? Uh, but that was definitely one where I would, if you had told me Nebraska had a 99% chance to win at one point, I would have believed you. So I was just there for fun, but Matt Fortuna from our staff was there at the press conference afterwards that Scott Frost looked like his dog had died. I read the quotes. He's at a complete loss. They're 0-6, the guy that's supposed to come save the program. They're 0-6, and yet I don't actually think they're, it's crazy to say, is it crazy to say that an 0-6 team to me, they don't actually seem to be, like, they don't, they're not that bad. They just keep shooting themselves in the foot. Look, I, I think some of this happens. We're, uh, we're seeing it. UCLA got their first win, blew out Cal the other day, and played Washington really tough the week before. I think when you have, especially not first-time head coaches, guys who are established, certainly Chip Kelly's more established than Scott Frost, but in, in two years, Scott Frost did a heck of a job at UCF. I think it's only a matter of time. You know, and I think people will look back and go, oh, man, they were three and nine the first year. Remember how awful that was? And they'll play a bunch of sound bites. And I wouldn't be surprised if somebody would tweet out this really stupid USA, USA Today story where they're talking about Scott Frost buyout. And I got to be honest, it was like, normally you don't like to kind of crap on other media. But, you know, and when I saw the Scott Frost thing, the Nebraska thing, it reminded me of like two months ago. Like a lot of people in national media were talking about how LSU, you know, Ed Ogeron's buyout situation. He'd been there one year, you know, and now they're number five in the country. The whole, like, I just think that, you know, we talk about how we're, our sport is such an overreaction based one. Um, and maybe we get the backlash of the backlash here. But <laughs> just you look at it and you go, let's pump the brakes a little bit here. The guy just got the job. You know, it's great if a coach can can hit the ground running and have a big first year or whatever. But, I mean, sometimes it takes a long time and sometimes it takes a while. And I just think Twitter, when we see all this, just people are just like so over their skis to just throw stuff out out there. And I don't know if it's clickbait or what, but I know what's going on. Yeah, it was the definition of clickbait. I have noticed over the last few years that the 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 hot seat element to the sport has almost taken on. You know, there's the playoff race, and then there's the race to see who's going to get fired first. Uh, which, by the way, turned out to be Mike Jinks at Bowling Green. But so, so there's there's that element to it. But there's a difference between 
you know, last... a hot seat and hot take, by the way. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to distinguish it. You know, Butch Jones last year was most definitely on the hot seat. Brett Bielema was most definitely on the hot seat. But when people are writing about buyouts after Willie Taggart after two yeah, or three games, yeah. Tom Herman after the first game of this season, and this one, if you're going to write about and he and Steve Burke was the person who wrote this is basically there. You know, he's the guy who's always tweeting like what some somebody got a five thousand dollar bonus for winning six games, or he just kind of spends a lot of time focused on the the financials. If you're going to write, and his lead was something like, you know, if Nebraska considers firing their embattled coach, nobody, nobody in the state of Nebraska is remotely interested in firing Scott Frost. That is just having no pulse whatsoever of the fan base. And in fact, we ended up at a sports bar after the game where there were a lot of Nebraska fans. And I happened to overhear one couple guys at one table talking to a woman from the other table about, you know, they're, look, they were, just, they were despondent. They were frustrated. You know, they should have won that game. But I actually heard him say, don't worry, you know, he's going to get it turned around. He's one of us. Uh, you know, he's a Nebraskan. He'll work hard. Like, it's not some random coach. It's their, it's their hometown hero. They're going to give him all the patience in the world to get that thing turned around. And I know you don't want to spend too long on this kind of meaningless game, but... Just no, I definitely don't. One other observation I just go wanted ahead. to add, go though. Ahead. This is my first time going to a game that I wasn't covering, I think, since my five-year reunion. I didn't go to the 10 or the 15, so 15 years ago. And I don't think I fully appreciated just how how much I'd lost touch with what it means to be, to watch a game with fans. You know, you're up in the press box, it's very sterile up there, and you're primarily, you're just focused on what you're going to write. You know, you're down on the sidelines, and I'm sure you're, you're, you're feeling the energy of the crowd much more, but you're focused on what's my next hit going to be. I mean, I was with a bunch of my friends who I used to go to the games with, you know, when they went to the Rose Bowl. And the emotional ups and downs of those last few minutes, the thinking it was over when they pinned it at the one, and then they're all going crazy when they scored the touchdown, of course, the game-winning field goal. College, it makes you realize college football, if you're really, really, you know, a fan who's really, really into it, the highs and the lows within a game, within a season, are just, they swing so wildly. And that's what makes the, the sport so much fun and also kind of heart-wrenching at times. I mean, imagine being a Nebraska fan driving back 10 hours from that game. So it was. I think it was good for me just like from a, I don't know, not like say mental health. I don't think that's just from a, a balancing perspective to just kind of get that reminder of like, this is who reads our articles. This is who's listening to the podcast. They're not people sitting behind a window in a press box watching things rather emotionless. You know, they've got a lot invested in these games and it was cool to to be back part of that for a week there were a lot of eventful games on saturday we saw four top 10 teams lose one of the we're going to talk about others on our own but one of them was of course one week you're talk, talking about highs and lows one week we're talking about west virginia winning the big 12 maybe going undefeated late in the season they got a big game against texas next thing you know they're getting their butts kicked at iowa state our man matt campbell does it again so our friend of the podcast, Tim Brando, was on the call there in Ames, so we want to bring him on to talk about that, to talk about the, the big game he has this week in Washington State, Oregon, and game day coming to Pullman, and this was unexpected. Tim goes on quite a rant about something in college football that you're going to want to hear, so let's get to our guest. All right, we're pleased to be joined now by a, a man who is becoming a frequent guest of the Audible, our friend Tim Brando. Tim there are a lot of upsets, a lot of top 10 teams that lost this past weekend. 
and you were there to call one of the big ones. How did Iowa State, two and three Iowa State, Matt Campbell did it again. How did they shut down Will Greer in West Virginia and hand the undefeated Mountaineers that, frankly, pretty lopsided loss? Yeah, actually, Stu, to be honest, it was worse than the score. <laughs> I mean, the score, uh, it was a six-point spread going into the fourth quarter, and Iowa State had outgained West Virginia four to one, and yet, and yet the score was twenty to fourteen. They wound up winning, obviously, by by sixteen points. But how did they do it? They discovered a freshman phenom that they had in their hip pocket and decided not to let loose until the second series against Oklahoma State. And then when you add David Montgomery, an already proven running back who had been out for three weeks with a shoulder and arm issue, they are now. A, a load, and, and I will tell you, if, if they stay healthy, if those two guys stay healthy, Iowa State may not lose another game in the Big 12 this year. I mean, they're that good. So college football, as we say often, is a game of evolution, and the team I saw this past week was not at all the team I saw in week two when they played for the Cyhawk Trophy in Iowa City and had virtually no offense in that particular game. So that's what happens in the college game. And, and Matt Campbell and his ability to beat top 10 opponents is pretty immense. And, and that scene that I saw uh, in the conclusion was reminiscent, really, of that big win that Iowa State got in 2011 against Oklahoma State that resonated nationally because it enabled Alabama to get a rematch against LSU in the BCS title game. I think that was uh, magical, what was going on in a nighttime environment. Now, they had big wins last year, obviously, beating Oklahoma on the road and then following that up with a win over TCU uh, the following week. But that was a daytime game, and, and TCU turned it over a lot. This was an emphatic, in-your-face, dominating victory against what I believe is still a quality West Virginia team that can, I think, really compete down the stretch. I don't think that they're necessarily that overrated. I just think they got that outplayed. Tim, let me ask you because I mean we're all big believers on our on the audible and Matt Campbell and last year obviously two top five wins did really well at Toledo. You know, you talk to people in West Virginia. What what was it? It was like those guys played harder than us. When you were around him for your meetings and everything like that, what's your impression? You've been around him a couple of times now. What's your impression of him for people who haven't spent much time with him? Eternally optimistic and will will defy anyone that believes that Iowa State's not big enough to be good enough. You know, and, and you know this, Bruce, because his name was popping up all over the place in the coaching carousel a year ago, and, and he was just uh, digging his feet in and saying, look, we got something special going on here. We're recruiting well, and, and, and they did recruit well. Listen, the find of this quarterback, this 18-year-old true freshman, okay, that didn't arrive until June of last year, Brock Purdy, was – in the late recruiting season, everyone was coming after him, including Alabama, including A&M, including, you know, major schools. And that didn't stop Matt Campbell from believing that he could connect with this kid and get him to come to Ames, Iowa. So that's the thing that I think sets him apart is that he's so comfortable with where he is and believes in, in the right fit for him being at Iowa State. That galvanizes a young team gets the buy-in right where it needs to be. You know, I'm thinking about the situation that uh, our friend Scott Frost is facing right now and how horrible it was for them to lose that game to Stu's alma mater. 
the way they did because that hurts your buy-in factor. You know, at some point you got to have that trigger victory to get people to buy in and to make the recruiting a little easier for you. Let's not forget Matt Campbell went three and nine in year one, but in year two, they get those two signature wins at midseason, wind up going seven and five, get the bowl win at the Liberty Bowl to go eight and five. And now he's got momentum. And even with the one and three start, they did not panic at all. And I think it was because Matt knew he had an answer in this kid, Brock Purdy, and he really does. All right. So, Tim, turning to your game you have this week and another, you know, Iowa State is kind of uh, enjoying this this moment in the sun. Well, Washington State is going to enjoy a moment that's been 15 years in the making Game, you know, they've, they've been flying the flag at, behind the set at game day every week for 15 years. And finally, the circumstances are such. Oregon won last week, set the stage for for Oregon at Washington State to be the big game this week. And you're doing it. Uh, before, we, before we go too far, Sue, I yeah. think it's worth noting. I don't know if you've heard this, but Tim Brando is the original host of College Game. Yes, let's discuss that. Let, let, let's, so before we get to you, Tim, on this... <laughs> I think it's only fitting that you should be the celebrity guest picker in the last segment. I mean, if not, Lee Fitting should just leave. If he can't see the writing on the wall and say, Tim Brando, the original host, the guy who put College Game Day on the the television map, shouldn't be the host, the celebrity picker, something's wrong. Sue, do you agree? Sue? Yeah, I mean... I'm not. I'm struggling to think of actual celebrities that are as associated with Washington State. I think Tim's probably a bigger celebrity than anybody we could come up with. Uh, it needs to happen. Now, Look, by the way, if Tim, the late, can we agree? If let's, the late great Keith Jackson were still with us, he would be the obvious no-brainer choice for that guest picker role. But yeah, Tim, you ready? Uh, that'll be what six a.m. call time there, Pacific time for the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do believe, correct me if I'm wrong, the former Detroit Lion, Utley, is also a Washington State grad. So That is correct. Mike Utley I'm played not, offensive line Mike for them. Yes. Yeah. I, I may, I, I, you know, look, uh, I appreciate your, your promotion, uh, Bruce. That's awfully kind of you and Sue for piling on. But I, I do think first and foremost, it's, it's really just cool for Spencer and Holly and I to be going in to call a game where – you know, Corso and, and Herb Street and Desmond and, and Reese Davis and those guys are going to be there. That's not happened for us since we joined Fox. And I think the increased attention that they bring to the to the table is, is great for us. That's one of the things um, that I've really admired about, you know, what game day has become. And some would argue, I think, historically, uh, James Andrew Millick did that, um, that piece of his uh, on his podcast. Uh, that he puts out, and um, and I ha- I had no idea that once I left that and and Chris Fowler took over a year later. Now I, Bob Carpenter followed me. That's the other answer to a trivia question is after I left after two years to go do games, and that's what I went to do. I stayed at ESPN, but I was doing games with Vince Dooley in 1989. I had no idea that the show was on life support. Uh, I believe that's what Chris Fowler said when he took it over in 1990. I had no idea of the inner workings of the sanctity of Bristol at that time, but I love being a part of their history and I still do. And, uh, I, am a fan of what they do. 
Uh, I think it's a, a great show. We didn't get to, to travel back in those days because Cap Cities was not going to spend the same kind of money as owners as, as Disney does. But when we did go on the road, and we did for national championship games at the Orange Bowl and at the Fiesta Bowl, the one that uh, Holtz won in 88, the reception that we got was tremendous. And I remember Bino saying to me, my God, Rando, people know me. <laughs> and, and, and they did. They knew Bino and, and they loved him just as they loved Corso. And, you know, Lee auditioned with me to get the job to join Bino and me back in 1987. And um, so I have great reverence for what they do. And uh, I don't, uh, you know, look, I, I would tell you that I, I won't, I'll get up whenever I need to get up for production meetings. <laughs> but I don't know that that's necessarily, you know, going to be high on, on Lee Fitting's uh, list to give me a call about being a guest picker. But I appreciate your thought, Bruce. I do. <laughs> I'll, be on, I'll be honest, Tim. We have a much better chance of getting you on as a celebrity guest picker on College Game Day than we ever did of getting you on Dancing with the Stars. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... but I think, that was a, I think that was more of a generational issue. You know, I don't think they have generational issues at, at game day for of dancing with the stars met, you know, they, but, but why do we need the old broadcaster at Fox on our show? Let's get someone that's a little younger and that maybe works at a Disney owned company. But, but listen, I'm, I'm friends with those guys. If the call is made, I will show up. How about that? I'll leave it there. In terms of this game though, you know, Oregon coming <laughs> off a, a huge win over Washington you know, I think going into the season, Bruce and I both felt like Oregon would be could be a much improved team. Justin Herbert, we knew that. I personally thought Washington State was in for a down year, partially for tragic reasons. Obviously, the guy who was going to be their new quarterback committed suicide in January. I did not realize that Gardner Minshew, the grad transfer from East Carolina, would actually come in and, and seemingly be actually a big upgrade at that position. They're playing very well. They just haven't been tested yet. What do we think they can do against this Oregon team? In that environment, and if you've never been to the stadium, it's it, it, it's smaller than than Oxen, but it's every bit as loud, you know. In my opinion, when they play really, really well, and I did a game there a couple of years ago, and it does get crazy in that building. The reality is, and I think when they lost their defensive, I think we all agree, Bruce, right? The defensive coordinator they had and lost was just tremendous. It kind of flipped the script for Mike Leach. Yeah, no doubt. Alex Grinch was really good, yeah. Yeah. And now now what does he do? He gets Clays, who had been at Minnesota, and it's just, I think they've, again, they're still playing really good on that side of the ball. That was another fantastic hire that Mike made. You know, you you hear so often about uh, you're only as good as your staff or the decisions that you make with your staff. And uh, the mad scientist made another wonderful hire on that side of the ball. I think that's helped him too, Stu, without question. Now, we'll find out a lot more against this Oregon offense because it's high octane. And I think the first player, and I'm not big on talking about first players that go in the draft in a certain position, but I think Herbert is the prototypical first quarterback that you would anticipate being in the draft. I mean, he is a big-time talent. So how they deal with that is going to be – the focus, I think, of, of the outcome of this game in many respects. But Washington State is legitimate, and Mike has built that thing up from scratch. I remember the first time, uh, the first game I did for Fox Bruce was with Joel Cloud in 2014. We were in Seattle, actually, and they played Rutgers and lost. And 
in two. I mean, they lost to Rutgers, and their offensive line was just bad. I mean, really bad. So, first thing Mike had to do was build up his offensive line, stuck because he knew he was going to get quarterbacks, and his system would score points. Okay, but he needed bigger and stronger athletes on the offensive line and then his defensive line, and effectively he's done that. And just by making his defense not first, but not last, you know, a, 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 a defense that against the rush and against the pass is is okay, uh, better than average or average with that offense, they're going to win a lot of games and compete for championships. That's how Washington State's done it, and that's a credit to Mike Leaf. All right, well, my last thing would be I saw you went on a bit of a Twitter rant about the latest AP poll coming off a weekend when – a bunch of top 10 teams lost. LSU, big win over Georgia. They have a loss, obviously, to Florida the week before. Notre Dame is undefeated, but had a close call against Pitt. What exactly is your beef with the AP poll, Tim? I don't think that being undefeated automatically warrants a team to be ranked ahead of another. I mean, if that were the case, why wouldn't UCF be that team as opposed to Notre Dame? I'll tell you why. Privilege. Brand. That's why. Why wouldn't, uh, if West Virginia were undefeated and not Notre Dame, would they be ranked ahead of LSU after LSU has beaten two top 10 teams on the road and a, and a top two team uh, at home? I mean, come on, please. Notre Dame barely beat Pitt at home. And, and Notre Dame beat a Virginia Tech team that was sliding on the road, a team that couldn't beat Old Dominion. I mean, I realize the Irish are an independent, and I realize that uh, they have tremendous history, and as someone that understands that history and tradition is the currency of college football, you'll hear me say that a lot, it should not impact the way we rank teams, and that is a problem. And, Bruce, uh, let me ask you, if you were if you were voting on the – and you may be. I don't know if you've got an AP vote or not, but would you vote Notre Dame over LSU? Would you right now? Tim, I for I am not an AP voter. I would okay. actually vote LSU over Clemson right now. Okay. I would. I'll tell you what. The, the Notre Dame's win against Michigan is a very good win that keeps looking better. Now, yeah, look, they they good. didn't yeah. they didn't look great against Ball State either. No, they did you not. know been a little spotty. I would say that. I think the issue a little bit for Notre Dame. Now, look, if they run the table, I think they're going to be in really good shape. But the way their schedule sets up, they need USC. To, to keep on winning because right now they need Stanford to look good. They need Michigan because the rest of their schedule just, you know, it's not going to have, I don't think, any wins close to top 10. And, you know, look, LSU, if LSU wins out, they're going to be fine. They don't need to worry. They're going to, they're going to, you know, go to the playoff. I think what's in, what will be interesting is where the other one loss teams would have a shot if you match them up against Notre Dame. But right now I think there's, I think it's too soon for us to get too worked up, but we appreciate no, no, your no, passion. No, 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 I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not too worked up, but what I'm trying to say is this is more fuel to the fire that I bring with regard to privilege to brand names, and that that is what is the biggest issue that we have with the committee, with the College Football Playoff Committee. I am Notre Dame's number one advocate right now. I want them to win out. I want them to take a spot. How many people have you heard say on a national forum, Stu, if they went out, they're in. They're Notre Dame. They're in. They are in. Stu said it. Tim Tim, Stu said that actually two weeks ago. Well, yeah, thank you, Stu. I mean, 
Tim, if they go undefeated, it won't even be a question. It's it's whether they well, it's whether they can afford to sustain a loss, which I tend to believe they can't. But after all the upsets this weekend, you start looking around and you go, "Hey, they the two SEC team yeah. scenario may not be on the table anymore. Are there are there even going to be four one loss teams in the mix? Or or I guess I should say, are there is there going to be a fifth? Because if not, I would think based well, on what we've seen from the committee so far, they're not going to pass on." 11-1 and one Notre Dame for a two-loss team. The potential, Bruce, and the, the, in my opinion, for everybody to have a loss but Alabama is there. I mean, it really is there. That everybody, uh, other than Alabama and UCF, all right? And by the way, the, the, the continual throwing of dirt on UCF and the glass ceiling that everyone says is there. I, I put out my top ten today, as I normally do, and I, I've, got, I've got UCF you know, in the, in the sixth position. Uh, because they're undefeated, and yeah, they're going to have a few ugly wins, and maybe the Memphis game was an ugly win, but it was on the road. It certainly wasn't any uglier than the pit the pit win for Notre Dame. And yeah, do I have an agenda when it comes to UCF? Absolutely, I'll admit that. Definitely, no problem. Okay, but I want Notre Dame to win out. I want them to take a spot from one of the cartel of five. That means again, two teams, or two conferences will be left out if Notre Dame is in then two conferences are going to be left out. And, oh, by the way, if everybody else loses, and they could, don't think Georgia can't slowly make its way back, particularly if they beat Florida, who you know certainly is ranked ahead of them now based on beating LSU. I mean, I've got Florida in my top ten, and I should. I mean, I didn't move them this week because I didn't think they were impressive against Vanderbilt. But I think I've got them at eight. So Georgia's going to move up because of their name and their privilege and what they did a year ago. I mean, I would just absolutely, Bruce, be excited beyond comprehension if two SEC teams got in, plus Notre Dame, and three of the cartel of five would be left out. Then you know at the end of this we'll have smoke-filled rooms that would make 2011 in New Orleans look like uh, uh, a poker party. Okay, They would come up with six minimum for next year if three conferences were left out and even maybe if two are left out. And if Notre Dame takes one of those spots, then we're going to have that. So forget it, big 12, forget it, Pac 12. And Oh, by the way, uh, if Clemson stubs their toe, forget about it. ACC Notre Dame could wreak havoc on the process. And any team that can do that is my closest friend, my closest ally the rest of the way. I want an overrated Notre Dame team. To, to steal a spot from the cartel of five. Tim, I got to ask you real quick. You said earlier that in terms of why LSU should be ahead of Notre Dame, that undefeated is not the end all be all, that is body of work. And I agree. But then you turned around and said you have UCF sixth. I, right. I don't even have the, I have them. I, I may only do a top 10. They would be 11th for me. I mean, what's mm-hmm. the, what, what is their, their win or their body of work that put, that has you put them over, Texas, which beat Oklahoma, or Florida, which beat I don't know your exact order, but if you have them, oh, six, you must agenda. have them. It's my agenda. It's my, it's agenda. Agenda. my agenda. So you're so you're mad oh, that the I committee admit. has an agenda, I but you're saying you do admit. have one. Yes, I do. When have I never admitted that I didn't have an agenda? I mean, I have an agenda. The group of five is my agenda. Okay, I'm sick and tired of people telling me, well, they play nobody. Well, it's not their fault that they play nobody. All right, and when they do play somebody, they win. 
How many games in a row have they won? That should count for something. And as Brian Kelly said, the Irish coach, hey, it didn't look good. You're going to have these games, but you have to win them. Well, you know what? That's that's what uh, Josh Heupel's been saying all year. That's what Scott Frost had to deal with last year. What what about UCF when they don't play their best and they find a way to win? It's not their fault nobody wants to play them, and the system is what it is. And I guarantee you there are teams in the American Athletic Conference that they're playing on a weekly basis in their league that are better than the teams Notre Dame chooses to play. And by the way, Notre Dame does have the privilege to get to choose to play the teams that they play. So, yeah, uh, no, there's no doubt about it. UCF has a glass ceiling. They can't get past where I have them right now. They're not going to get past where I have them right now. But will I put them there? Yeah, damn right I will. Until the system is changed so that privilege and bias is out of the mix. And until they go to six, until they go to six, they're not going to be able to convince me of that. Until they show me some transparency, they're not going to convince me of that. And until they have diversity on their committee, which they do not have, they will not convince me of that. All right, Tim. Uh, you just gave us like a Nathan Jessup moment, which we didn't see coming, but that's all good. Um, <laughs> so, look, the only agenda, Stu, and I have is we want to see you in that last segment on College Game Day. Nothing would please us well, more. <laughs> well, so. what I just did, what I just did is probably what will keep me off being a guest speaker on Game Day. <laughs> oh, Tim, you have a body of work that would already keep you off there. We're, we're just trying to humor you. Tim, I don't think you're going to. I don't think you're going to be on that Tuesday night uh, playoff ranking show this year. I'm sorry, sorry no, about that. No, I, I, you know, I, Reese Davis should get the Purple Heart for having to do that damn thing. Oh my God! <laughs> I mean, what a what an awful assignment to have to have on a weekly basis to have to throw up those questions, knowing the kind of regurgitated canned responses you're going to get. Oh, Tim. Tim, you are really hurting your cause. We, uh, you know, I thought this thing was trending to get you on there. I was going to DM <laughs> Felica, and then all of a sudden, you just like basically went up to Bristol and took a dump. I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. Oh God! But that being said, you're going to be calling one of the probably two or three most important games this weekend in the country. A game with the pack, you know, to see who takes control or, or driver's seat of the Pac-12 North. So I think that's a pretty good consolation prize. Oh, yeah, it is. And, and, by, and, and seeing Corso, just seeing those guys is going to be great. You know, I hear from Lee all the time, and I, I, I tell those fellas all, every time we have an opportunity to cross paths, I love those retrospective pieces on game day because it guarantees that I'll get some ink. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Tim, we will watch you this weekend. And as always, thank you for joining us on The Audible. You got it, fellas. Anytime. You know that. It's never boring when we have Tim on. Sometimes it's cringeworthy, but it's never boring. Um, so, Sue, I, I, since I know you were tied up uh, at a stadium, and I, I was actually able to watch a bunch of games. Stadium with I got, no Wi-Fi, I might add. Yeah, that's not good for all that all the money you guys have invested in your in, indoor facility. Yeah, they I'm need to take some of that invested out. in that, that dilapidated stadium, but go ahead. Uh, so... Did you get to see any of LSU's beatdown of Georgia? Oh, yeah. That was in the next window. You know, by the time by the time we got to a sports bar, we were able to see that. We were able to see uh, the end of Pitt-Notre Dame. We were able to see Washington-Oregon. But you and I both had Georgia number two going into the week. And I regrettably said that they appeared to be the most complete team in the country. It was more that they just hadn't been tested. You know, they faced their first 
elite opponent and got their butts kicked. And it was it's not surprising that you would lose a road game to LSU. You know, you knew that would be a tough game. You know, Jake Fromm had been playing very well this season, and he couldn't do anything against that LSU defense, that Georgia defense that we've, you know, become accustomed to seeing play very well, obviously, last season and, and early this season. Could not stop the run. I don't know, where does that leave Kirby Smart? I mean, he, after the game, was very much spinning it as, well, this happened to us at Auburn last year, and look what happened. Do you think that's what this is? This was their one bad week, and then you know, they got Florida in two weeks. Like, well, how yeah, bad should they be? I don't know. I mean, just they looked like pretty average on defense, to be honest. Their linebackers didn't look great. Obviously, they don't have Roquan Smith anymore. I don't know if they, you know, they lost some really good players to the NFL. What was interesting to me was in the beginning of the game, Georgia mows downfield with a bunch of run games where they're blowing through them. And then they got they had to go for a field goal and Kirby Smart got too cute, tried the less miles fake flip field goal. And Grant Delpit, who right now I think might be the best defensive player in college football, he he senses it, covers the guy, doubles back and tackles the kicker. And then from that point on, Georgia, Georgia was already down 3 nothing. LSU moves downfield, takes a 10 nothing lead. And it was almost like at that point, Georgia kind of got hit in the mouth and didn't know how to react. And like you said, I mean, LSU ran for more yards than anybody's run on Georgia in two years. I mean, 275 yards. And Nick Brosette and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire are running well. But those guys aren't Leonard Fournette or Darius Geis. And the offensive line, as we talked about before, is pretty patchwork. But they, those guys play hard. And there's something I'll give LSU credit on in a big way here is they took like 11 shots downfield. And I think for a lot of people look at it and go, okay, this is still kind of underwhelming offense. Joe Burrow is playing very well. And I think Steve Ensminger has done a really good job as the offensive coordinator and how he's setting stuff up. And quite honestly, I thought Steve Ensminger especially, they outcoached Georgia. I mean, Georgia just looked like they had – they were trying to do too much, and they looked confused. I'm curious as to how it's going to be handled now. I know our, our uh, colleague Seth Emerson, who covers Georgia for us, terrific beat writer, he wrote about not a quarterback controversy, but a quarterback situation that, that Kirby Smart's got there with Justin Fields and, and Jake Fromm now. I mean, you talk to some people close to the Georgia program, they'll tell you when the level of competition rises up, there has been some, some concerns there. And uh, I still think Georgia's a top five team, but they got blown out of the building. It wasn't like this was a close game. I mean, it was uh, – I still think they're the class of the SEC East. And I think, you know, who knows? They, I mean, I think LSU will struggle against Alabama, and they have a tough one again this week when Mississippi State comes in there. That was a Mississippi State team that beat them by 30 last year. But I think Georgia could still play with anybody. We'll see how much better they get as the season goes on. But – that was a, a – I think that was like, for me, I was looking at it and going, well, they went toe-to-toe with Alabama in the title game. They still have a lot of the same guys. They still look like they can run the ball well. And then you take that with all how well they've recruited. But a lot of those big recruits that they've just signed, some of those guys are freshmen at this point. So I think maybe a lot of that contributed to us maybe going too far – too far to – putting too many chips on the table. But to spin it a little more forward, I would say this – you know, so yeah, Georgia was exposed. You start looking at Notre Dame struggling against Pitt. You start looking at Ohio State. I know you didn't get a chance to see any of that. Ohio State for a while had their hands full with 
with Minnesota. I mean, their offensive line really struggled. They couldn't protect Dwayne Haskins. That game was pretty close for a while. How concerned would you be with the Buckeyes? I've been concerned about the Buckeyes for weeks. Well, yeah, I get it. I remember you picked them like eight and four. Well, no, no, no. Yes, I did. That was the Urban Meyer stuff. I'm saying it's been noticeable probably since that TCU game that this is not your vintage Ohio State defense, but they won that game. They were able to pull out the win at Penn State. It seemed like they were going to be okay. But over the last two weeks against Indiana and Minnesota, Dwayne Haskins is playing phenomenal. No question about that. But there's just there's a lot of flaws all over the rest of that team. And, um, you know, whether it's you got J.K. Dobbins and you've got Mike Weber, and they're not really having that much of an effect. They're having trouble running the ball. Their linebackers have trouble. Uh, they miss a lot of open field tackles. I don't think I'm going on a limb to say I think Ohio State's going to lose at some point. They're not. Other than Alabama, everybody, I think, looks like they're going to lose at some point if they haven't already. Everybody's a little bit flawed. But when you make of the they're going to Purdue this week, Purdue's won three straight. I mean, is that one of the teams that could possibly knock them off? Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know if Purdue is good enough on defense to do that, but, you know, Jeff Brom's really creative and they have played pretty well. I mean, when you look at what they have left, it's, it's, they're going to get challenged. I mean, I think they're pretty vulnerable. If they do get by Purdue, they, the one game I think they should coast through is Nebraska. It's in Columbus, but then they got to go to Michigan State and Mark D'Antonio always plays them well. They'll play a Maryland team on the road that's, that's tricky and just what they do. And then they play Michigan. And I want to t- just touch on Michigan for a little bit because they had a nice win over Wisconsin. Michigan looks like from the from week one, Shea Patterson's first game as a Wolverine on the road at, against a good Notre Dame team. Feels like they've really kind of started to to get an identity and settle into what what they're about right now. Yeah, so I wrote all about Michigan in the forward pass on Monday and whether we should buy in or not because we've been certainly those of us who have bought in before have been burned before. I mean, the one thing I'll say about Michigan is that Shea Patterson is doing exactly what you thought he might do when they picked him, when they were able to pick him up. You know, he had that long run against Wisconsin. In fact, I don't necessarily think I, I, I thought he would elevate their offense. I didn't necessarily think it would be because of his ability to run the ball and the, and the, effect, the effect that has on their overall running game. So, you know, they look much better on offense than they have in a while. There's, Don Brown's defense is ridiculous. I mean, Say what you want about Alex Hornerbrook. He he could barely complete a pass uh, the other day. My one hesitation, and they're going, you know, they they're going this week to East Lansing to play this Michigan State team that's been a thorn in their side for for ten years now. Michigan State eight and two over the past decade. Obviously, I mean, for anybody, it's hard to win on the road in college football. But the disparity between how Michigan plays at home versus how they play on the road. It's pretty staggering. If you go back to the start of the 2016 season, 17 and two in the big house, six and five on the road. So far this season, they are five and zero at home, and they've won those games by an average margin of 46 to 13. The two road games lost 24-17 in Notre Dame, got down 17 nothing at Northwestern, won 20 to 17. So facing Michigan State, coming off a, a big win at Penn State. Michigan State has mastered the art of winning ugly, to say the least. They're just their offense is so limited, and yet when they need to make a play at the end of that Penn State game, they made it. So, you know, I'm inclined to say Michigan runs the table up until the Ohio State game, but I also fully acknowledge, you know, at this point maybe it's dumb to just to, to ever assume they might beat Michigan State. 
Michigan State is tough to read, but yeah, it's, it's always been a very, very heated rivalry because everyone talks about the big game in Ohio State, but this has also been a thorn. One other game I want to hit on from, from the other night is one you were at. And by the way, I was right. The hotel I was staying at, the residence in I was staying at, did not have FS1. I watched most of your game on my phone. SC Colorado, Colorado goes into it undefeated. SC pretty much handled them, especially defensively. LaVisca Chenault had that one really long run off the Wildcat, but other than that, they mostly kept him in check. Is USC going to, Is there, are they starting to do what they did in 2016, where they dug themselves a hole and everybody wants to fire Clay Helton, and then, I mean, they're going to they're gonna end up winning the South, aren't they? They're, they they're going to they're gonna end up with 10 wins again, aren't they? I don't know if they're going to end up with 10 wins, but I do believe they'll win the South, because the South is really mediocre. The areas where I think it's different, and Clay Helton, when we, when we met with him on Friday for a while, talked about, I want, I went because they were coming off a bye week, and he goes, I went to our coordinators. I want us to be ultra aggressive and constantly, you know, have the foot on the pedal. And that worked out well when you had Sam Darnold. I think it was his personality, just go play and everything. And I'm not sure how it is, if it's the same kind of vibe around these guys a little bit. You know, the, here's the, the areas of concern for me why I don't think they're going to win 10 games. They went to halftime. They had zero rushing yards, and they finished with 50-some. And this was a game where they were out in front. Their passing game, it wasn't – Amon Ross St. Brown has been their best receiver. In this game, Michael Pittman stepped up and had a monster game. I mean, the way Colorado plays you defensively, and we know this going in, uh, Brady Quinn, our analyst, was all over this, was just – they're almost daring you to take shots over them. And USC has big athletic receivers, and JT Daniels can throw it. And they t- exploited that, although JT Daniels did throw two picks early, but after that he settled in. The run game gives me concern if I'm a USC fan. And also, they went in there, they had Cam Smith sideline. He's the leader of the defense with a hamstring issue. And Porter Augustin was 50-50 because of a ankle. Porter Augustin played, and he played his butt off, but then two and a half minutes left in the game, he he told me the ankle just went, and now he's out for the year. And they're going to miss him. I really think that they're they're pretty good on defense. They're not that much more than pretty good. And I think that they're going to have some struggles. I just don't think the margin for error with them, especially because they can't run the ball very well. Is is a, is going to be a challenge for them. One stat that kind of now blows me away, and we talked about it in the game. You know how many games Clay Helton has lost at USC since taking over at the Coliseum? The, at the Coliseum, I believe zero. Yes, he is now nineteen and zero, which is impressive. And they are going to get Notre Dame at the Coliseum. So let's see. You know, that's a little bit down the road. They are. They're probably that was their best game, but one one other thing that I think probably gives them some pause beyond just the areas I mentioned. You know, they jumped out all over Arizona and then let Arizona back in the game and had to scuffle at the end to survive it. They were they were up big on Colorado, and by the way, Lavisca Chanel left the game with a foot and ankle injury, so he was some of his numbers were a little bit, you know, to put that in context. But they let Colorado kind of sneak back in the game too, and. You just wonder again, as he's trying to say, preach aggressiveness. I just don't, you know, you wonder about the personality of that team and how they, how they kind of go from here. They have a tough game this week, obviously at Utah, where you know Utah has two losses already, but they've scored forty plus points in their last two games. I do agree the Porter Gustin injury. 
I think regardless, I think um, you mentioned it earlier. I could totally see a scenario where Notre Dame gets to 11-0 and and is playing at SC that last weekend. They have not fared well in those games in, in at the two California schools recently. That that would be the buildup for that one would be would be pretty special. All right, you guys sent some good emails uh, this week to the audiblepod at gmail.com. There's a there was a bit of a scan not a bit, a, a pretty big scandal in the Pac twelve last week that we should address. If you are you guys aren't familiar, Pete Thamel, our buddy at Yahoo, broke the story that in the Washington State USC game a few weeks ago, there was a targeting call that the replay officials at the stadium thought was targeting and the, the, the people back at the command center in, in San Francisco thought it was targeting. But Woody Dixon, an administrator in the conference who basically oversees football for the conference, called wasn't even there, called in his opinion that it wasn't targeting. So that's what happened, and it caused quite a bit of scrambling amongst the Pac-12 folks. They especially since Pac-12 Basketball Media Day was that next day. So Vince Price from Philadelphia, with Pete Thamel's report about an untrained, quote, third party overruling a targeting call in the game last month, is this the straw that finally breaks the camel's back and leads to the removal of Larry Scott as Pac-12 commissioner? I think most Pac-12 alumni are sick of Larry Scott and view his management of the conference as a complete joke. We also have one from Brian Tragaser. He didn't call for Larry Scott's head, but he wondered if they're going to fire Woody Dixon. By the way, thank you, Brian, for phonetically spelling out your yeah. name. We appreciate when you guys do that. It makes life on us easier. You know, I, I did a story on The Athletic, I think it was Friday, in the wake of all this, talking to a lot of people around college football, including a bunch of people who have Pac-12 ties. And what Vince points out, I think there is a lot of – I don't think it's going to necessarily happen. But what you have, Larry Scott has some some key support from – basically the head at Oregon state as well as Arizona state who've really championed him. And there's a lot of other people who think the leadership is really lacking. And one of the things that came up a lot is Larry Scott, especially, but always thinks they're smart. But a lot of the people who run the PAC 12 think they're smarter than everybody else. And you end up with situations. You can end up with situations like this where it's like only the PAC 12. And I mean, I, after my column went up, I heard from other people in the conference who were in the conference who were coaches who were just like embarrassed, incredulous. And, but it's just like, this is the PAC 12. It's just really, it's just kind of a head scratcher, but there's a lot of stuff that happens with the PAC 12 that falls in line of head scratch, you know, like head scratching. It's like they go, as somebody else pointed out, it's like they go out of their way to try to do these innovative things. And sometimes it's at the, it, it seems like, those should be back burner issues and the things you should you should rectify are the things that are most pressing to serve co- the college football fan or college football, college athletics. And it doesn't work that way. I mean, do you think Larry Scott's in jeopardy? No, I think that, I mean, first of all, what you said is absolutely true. It's a conference where, by the way, Woody Dixon, his title is general counsel and VP of business affairs at the Pac-12 conference. And somehow he ended up affecting a targeting call in a football game. They just don't have the same priorities other conferences do. Since Larry's got it's out of whack. It is really out of whack. Because remember, they had a they had an officiating scandal in basketball too with Ed Rush and and Sean Miller. These things affect the credibility enormously. Like whether that targeting call would have affected the outcome of the game or not doesn't matter. Now you have this perception that every replay in a in a Pac-12 game maybe 
you know, being interfered with by, by outside parties. Now, the next morning, Larry Scott flat out said, Woody Dixon will not be have any involvement in these things going forward. They will be investigating how it happened. But regardless, um, I mean, Pac-12 officials are already, a, you know, a, a meme on Twitter. It's just that I, it's hard to describe to fans in other parts of the country. The, the Larry Scott and the people that he hired are very much focused on being the most innovative conference and, and the, you know, having the coolest TV network and, you know, all they, they've done various initiatives, admirably so, about student-athletes and, you know, I think they were kind of the forefront of the movement recently to, you know, try to rein in the amount of time they have to spend on, on their sport, had giving them a day off, all that stuff, and that's fine. But at the end of the day, the people who are going to the games – the networks that are paying you all that money care about the on-field product, and I just don't think they put enough priority on it. Why was why was Washington playing at Oregon, huge game, the week after playing at UCLA? No other conference would put their team in that kind of their their top team in that kind of situation. So, is Larry Scott going to get fired? No, because his bosses are the presidents of the university, and they don't care about targeting calls. You know, they care about how much money the conference is making, how they're doing academically, all that stuff. But the fact I mean, that Woody Dixon might survive this tells you how out of whack things are there. Yeah, just one final point on that. You know, you talk to people who are experts in their field in college athletics, and they will talk to you about how they advise Larry Scott or somebody at the Pac-12 to do such and such, and it gets ignored or just – and you're just like, this, this kind of reinforces the – they think they're smarter than everybody else thing. And you end up with stuff like this. So, oh, well, next question, Mike to Donna, why are we not talking about the possibility of two big 10 teams in the playoffs? Sue? Well, probably because the, well, the sec two teams thing, obviously it happened last year and there was precedent for it. And there was thought going into last weekend, at least that maybe Georgia and Alabama would both make it through undefeated. Obviously that, that scenario is not in play for the Big Ten. Nobody's going to come out undefeated from the West. But I guess if Ohio State makes it undefeated all the way to the Michigan game and Michigan beats them and Michigan ends up being the 12-1 and Big Ten champ and Ohio State's sitting there at 11-1, and that's, that's definitely in the uh, – I mean, that's absolutely in the realm of possibility. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much the one scenario. Michigan State already has two losses. Penn State already has two losses. So you're talking strictly about Ohio State and Michigan. Um, I guess that would depend on what. I mean, look, Ohio State got in at 11 and one uh, two years ago, so it would be it would be very a very similar situation. You know what would hurt? I, I think quite honestly, if you're talking about trying to get them both in, the the wins that Ohio State has that win over TCU is not looking that great. TCU now has three losses, just just lost at home to Texas Tech. Penn State just got another loss. And if it, I think Penn State would probably end up having at least three losses if the scenario that we're talking about were to have to shape up. I just don't think that would give them enough quality wins, to be honest, to, to, to do that. Yeah, it w- you know, the scenario two years ago, they had a win over Oklahoma, who ended up winning the Big 12. TCU not heading that direction this year. Charles in Dallas. Hey, guys, loving all the coverage on The Athletic this year. I subscribed when Bruce came aboard. Thank you very much, Charles. My school, Arkansas, pursued Gus Malzahn last season. Now that Auburn plausibly might struggle to be even be bowl eligible, and, and woof, that lost to Tennessee. Not good, Gus. Does Auburn regret pushing so heavily to keep the Gus bus? Could they really pull the plug at this point? 
I really don't think they can with the deal they have right now. What I think is is challenging is would you admit? Would you say that Gus Malzahn was on the the hot seat for real at some point last year at the beginning of the year? Not not just the beginning of the year. Middle up until year, they yeah. beat. They, I remember vividly listening to Brandon Marcello, who covers Auburn, on Paul Feinbaum's show the week they were about to play Georgia in mid-November. And it was literally like, if he loses both, he's fired. If he, both um, Georgia and Alabama. If, they, if he wins, if he loses to Georgia but beats Alabama, then maybe he survives. And, of course, he ends up winning both and getting a huge contract out of it. No, they, they, there's no way they could fire him right now. He'll, he'll, be, he'll be back. But, man, it's... Uh, it again is just yet another example of the, the wildly overspending. Now, do you think our friends on the Yahoo podcast, Pete Dammel, Pat Forty, Dan Wessel debated this last week? Should Gus Malzahn have gone to Arkansas when that option was on the table? I think he should have. Yeah, I think he should have too. But it's it's like very. It's hard for sometimes you to make comments without knowing everything about like it's going home. But you just don't know how somebody's life, you know, personal life and life is where their family's most comfortable, those kinds of things. I mean, it's just a very, it's, I don't think it's just as simple as the job. I mean, I think that's obviously a a huge part of it, but you know, those guys were also talking about, well, if he, if you go eight and four at Arkansas, they'll build your statue, you go eight and four at Auburn, they'll fire you. Well, the Auburn part's right, but they're not going to love you at eight and four at, at Arkansas for very long. You know, the, I think, especially in the way things are now. The I part just think, I, yeah, the part I agree with them about is once you're on the hot seat, it's hard, it's hard to come. It's, it's almost impossible to, to not get back on. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is a good one from John Polzer. So Texas Tech beats TCU in that Thursday night game 17-14, I believe. It was the first time since 2001 that Texas Tech won a game scoring that few points. Texas Tech can actually win a game with its defense now. It's remarkable. John Polzer, Bruce, I appreciate the reference to David Gibbs and staff after Tech's big victory at TCU. But what about the credit to Zach Spavital, who's coached both defensive backs and linebackers and put numerous players in the NFL? His linebacker crew made a huge difference in that game and is worth mentioning in addition to Gibbs. Uh, John, you are correct. Zach was who I was thinking of when I referenced and staff. He was with Gibbs at Houston and developed a bunch of you know, high round NFL players in the secondary. Uh, you're right. The linebackers are the best part of the defense. They're actually maybe the best part of the team right now, which is crazy for people to think about, like, you know, to think that the defense would, would trump anything on the offense. But Jordan Brooks was a, was a big recruit. He was an SEC caliber linebacker who started as a freshman in 2016. Dakota Allen, whose, whose path around Texas tech has been well documented by our own Max Olson. And, and, uh, you know, they've, they've got some depth there, but they've got big-time guys. And I think you saw that. You really saw that against a, a team that TCU – look, TCU gave Ohio State big problems, a bunch of big plays. And I thought what Texas Tech was able to do on the road, no less, was really bottle them up. And I think the turnaround job that those guys have done on the defensive side of the ball is pretty remarkable because they, they have been god-awful on defense. And they didn't have – Anybody who who really could, uh, you know, they were just overmatched for years and years. And then just to, to flip that where, you know, it's hard to recruit into that. I think it's hard for somebody because Texas Tech defense had been a punchline for so long. So I give them credit not only for recruiting to it, but also to, to change the mindset and the face of all that. No question. No question. Finally, hi, Stu and Bruce. 
Lots of good debate you've had on the best teams you've covered, but where does this Rutgers team rank among the worst Power 5 teams you've ever seen from Jeremy? I thought that, uh, you know, I watched the, a lot of Sports Center to catch up the other night, and Kenny Maine and his and his typical deadpan delivery had a great line. A segue to the Rutgers-Maryland highlights, where Rutgers lost 34-7. He said something like, the forward pass was invented in college football 100 years ago, but somewhere along the way, Rutgers lost the blueprint. They had, in this game, two completed passes and five interceptions. It's very hard to do. I don't know, what's your, what's your perspective on their one and six? The one win was Texas State. They lost 52-3 to Ohio State, 55-14 to Kansas, 42-13 to Buffalo, 24-17 to Indiana, 38-17 to Illinois, who is pretty terrible itself. And 34-7 to Maryland. By the way, that one win to Texas State, they're one and five. So, like, their one win was over, you know, perhaps the worst team in all of FBS. So, that's, you know, even worse. And I, I don't know. I mean, it just the, – the to me, the worst team I've ever seen as a, as a uh, power five – wasn't power five back then. I was doing some basketball feature for ESPN Magazine and was down in the Raleigh-Durham area. And went to see the Duke and UNC game at the end of the year. And UNC, could they had Julius Peppers, and they could have beat Duke by 100 points. I mean, Duke football at that point was horrific. I don't know if Rutgers is quite that bad. But you're seeing, I mean, when they're losing to Buffalo by 30 and to Kansas by, by 40, I mean, my God, it's just like, I don't know. I like Chris Ash. I don't, you know, it's hard. I think that's one that is a... It's hard to uh, to turn that around when it gets to be this bad. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know what you know how you sell people because you're in a you're in a big media market in that area. They've had some success, and again, I mean, look if you want to find if you want to think about what Greg Schiano did as a Rutgers coach, think about how awful Rutgers football has been now. I mean, yeah, they're in a much tougher conference. But the team, so the the games that I was just talking about, those weren't Big Ten games. I mean, Kansas is not good, and they got destroyed by Kansas. Buffalo is a MAC team, and they got destroyed by Buffalo. These aren't even Big Ten games we're talking about. So again, I mean, well, here's this is here. No, this is I, I got to say this this is probably as bad of, of a Power Five team I think as we can remember. I know what Washington State was god awful before Leach got there. This is this is I don't say. Right up there, it's right down there with that, you know, with the worst we've seen. I mean, it's bad, but I don't know that it's any worse than some of these Kansas teams of the last five years. There was a Washington team that went 0 11 under Tyron Willingham that was pretty bad. But the main thing I would say is I'm not even sure this is the worst Rutgers team in recent history. I just pulled up the 2001 Rutgers team, Greg Schiano's first season. They went 2 and 9, the wins were over Buffalo and Navy. They lost 61 nothing to Miami, 50 to nothing to Virginia Tech, 30 to 5 to Temple, 80, 80 to 7 to West Virginia, 42 nothing to Pitt, 38 7 to BC, 20 to 10 to Cast. But Sue, some of those teams you're talking about were actually very good. We're talking about losing by 40 to Kansas and by 30 to Buffalo. Mm-hmm. You lose by 40 to Kansas. That's that's pretty awful. I mean, you lose by 40 to Kansas. I don't care what, West, like, Rich Rod's West Virginia team put, like, 80 on them. I mean, like... Now, and what know. about the team two years ago, Chris Ash's first season? 
The only wins were over Howard and New Mexico. They lost 48-13 to Washington, 14-7 to Iowa, 58-0 to Ohio State, 78-0 to Michigan, 24-7 to Illinois, 34-32 to Minnesota, actually. Uh, I can't put them in the conversation, See, actually. Here's, here's where I think they we're, were actually we're, close against some teams, yeah. Where I think you're missing what I'm saying. It's uh, I'm not it's, uh, giving you a pass to lose by 80 points to anybody, but you lose by 80 points to a really good team in your, your conference – Okay, you lose by 40 to a horrible team in another conference. That's where I think where you start to say, okay, this is these are bullet points on your resume kind of thing when we're talking about this. That's that's how I'm viewing this. Well, now that we've said all this, watch them turn around and beat Northwestern this week. That would be fitting. You you ready to do our shout outs? Do you do you? But but real quick, okay. What do you know who they're? So they play Northwestern this week, and then the last four games. Get Everybody pray for Rutgers. The last four games at Wisconsin, Michigan, Penn State, at Michigan State. Yeah. Yeah. They need, you know what? I think it would, it would, I think it would very much behoove Chris Ash and that staff to get, to be very competitive and somehow get a home win against Northwestern this week. Anything's possible. Northwestern almost lost to an 0 5 team last week. Shout outs. Uh, shout outs. Do what you got. Well, considering I forgot we were doing this segment, maybe you should start. Okay. I, as we said, I was, I was home this weekend and I'm going to give a shout out to, uh, my TV bosses and my TV colleagues. I, I went in to watch games. As you remember, there's, there's no better place to, to spend a Saturday in the fall than, you know, than our avocado room. So I got to see all, you know, Leinert and Wanstead and Rob and Robert Smith, but it was also in the window where the the baseball playoff guys were in there, and it, I just had a blast. You know, like by now I know Frank Thomas pretty good because he's a big college football fan, so you get to watch Auburn lose with him, which was which is interesting. But my big shout out is going to go to Big Poppy. So I have well, I have never met, but my family came in to visit me, and. So they, my kids, especially my son knows at least our college football people. They know who coaches, they know who Matt is, they know who Robert is well and everything. But I went to get changed. And as I did, I come back and I see big poppy playing with my son. He'd come in. He was like, you know, rubbing his head, goofing around with him. And he's like rolling on, you know, he's like just teasing him. And I was like, Oh my God. I was like, you know, at one point it just was a very sweet moment. Again, this is somebody who, who I, I, you know, I had never met before. But just to see that was like really a cool day as a parent to just, you know, like I feel it was very fortunate for the job. But, you know, I don't know. So it's it's great to see when people are, you know, are that way to, you know, they know they can make a little kid's day. And um, he was really good about that. So that's awesome. And you showed me some of the pictures of Ben playing with him. That was really cool. OK, my shout out goes to my shout out goes to you, Bruce Feldman. Uh, like I said, I'm watching your USC Colorado game on my phone late uh, Saturday night, and they go down to Bruce on the field. And I'm always excited when I actually catch some of your sideline hits. So my shout out is to you for introducing us to the concept of a cricket cookie. This was the hit of Twitter. I mean, I don't know how many people are watching the game at that point, but it seemed like everybody we follow on Twitter was. And they all wanted you to eat that cricket cookie. Tell us how this segment came to be. It was something where USC had, you know, a lot of times schools will send you all their notes and different things. And that was one of the things that, you know, you look at, you look at some of these things and it's like, well, we're never going to be able to get all this stuff in a broadcast. 
And then there are some times where it kind of devolves into blowout material. In the case of this, I think my sideline producer was, they were very intrigued with the idea of me having to, uh, having to have to eat this. There were two, they they look like ginger snaps, cookies that were made of cricket parts. And it was all part of something that, that, uh, (laughs) cookie made of cricket parts. Are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. And, um, so the game was, uh, so this was really, so this was part of their sustain. Just just this was part of USC's first ever zero waste game game. And so what it was, was over the last couple of years, USC had diverted, I think the number was 90% of the waste generated, not just at USC games, but Ram games. And we're talking about like, I think the number was 260 tons uh, from landfills to recycling or composing. And USC is something that the school has been, you know, at the forefront of doing. And as part of it, they were handing out these cookies made of insects. Well, as we know, I am a very picky eater to begin with. I don't even eat like mushrooms. So the I thought of me eating this was just not going to happen. And um, so it was just kind of like, all right, this is definitely not going to be me. But um, at the end of the game, so, you know, I was and Brady or Joe were not going to eat them either. But my producer, Bo, he was a uh, avid outdoorsman. He ate them like he was eating like a bag of chips. He was like scarfed them down, said, hey, these are pretty good. So I was like, well, we should have had him in the segment instead of me for that. But um, so, yeah, so that was what that was. It ha- I think the segment actually went on after 1.30 Eastern in the morning. So I was, you know, I was actually surprised how many people saw it. And um, I don't know how no. many people in the country saw it, but everybody that covers college football saw it. And we all, all wanted you to eat that cookie. And I don't know, man, you got to suck it up. This is TV, you know. Our friend Molly McGrath rides a motorcycle into the game. So Allison Williams, you know, at risk of embarrassing herself, dancing like crazy with this uh, crazy Utah fan the other night. And you can't eat a cookie? It's not a cookie, Stu. It's a cookie made of crickets. You, you know, I'm sorry. I'm not doing that. You know, we're going to, uh, you know, like. That's, I why they, that's why they pay you the big bucks. That is actually not why they pay you the big bucks. <laughs> In fact, that's actually not why they do that. So, um, so yeah, so if you want to say I wussed out and didn't, didn't eat it, Brady and Joe were, Jake, Brady and Joe were on my side on that one as well, but so be it. So if you want, I can get you, I can get Tim Tesalone to send you a bunch of insect cookies. How would you like that? Um, maybe you could get, maybe you can give them out to your staff. Yeah. I was for, just going to uh, say, um, let me Christmas. give you, let me, let me give you Dan Uthman's address in Portland. And, uh, yeah, be, feel free to send, send a few bags to him. How do you think it would go over if you, if you like, put out an edict that everybody on your staff had to, uh, had to eat these at the next time? The, I, I don't, I, you, you seem to think I'm like a, an emperor or something. I can't force people to eat things. Okay, then. Well, on that note, Sue. On that note. Really, um, really long. Yeah, well, our podcasts have been getting longer and longer. Uh, we used to try to keep them under an hour. They keep creeping over that mark. But I have not heard any complaints. If you want to complain, send your complaints to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. You know, we actually don't get a lot of listener feedback. Well, I guess that's not true. We get a lot of, hey, love the show. So that's good. So that's what we're getting. We're getting a lot of still, we're still getting love the show. We're not getting your show is too long. Please cut it in half. So we'll just keep doing what we're doing. We'll see you next time. 
If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank our producer, Nick Fink, and we'd like to thank Kevin and the Octaves for our intro song, Dangerous. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic yet, what are you waiting for? Read both myself and Bruce and all our other great writers there. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible and get 25% off. You can also follow our coverage at The Athletic CFB. You can follow me at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. We'll see you next time.